Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hosea chapter 5. We're going to begin this week in verse 8, and we're going to read through chapter 6, verse 3. Hosea chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 3. As I've said, while you're turning there, Hosea, especially this section from 4 up through 14, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly where all the section breaks are supposed to be, what, you know, defines a particular section, and Basically, every commentary does it a little bit differently. Um, and, and, you know, so we're looking at 5.8 through 6.3 this morning because I think it all goes together. And, and we'll look at why as we go through the sermon. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative and comforting and challenging word. Blow the horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he is determined to go after filth. But I am like pus to Ephraim, and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Most gracious and holy Father, as we look at your word, I ask as Brent prayed that you would strengthen me by your spirit, that you would fill my mouth, that I may boldly proclaim your gospel. Surely it is only in the power of the spirit that my words have any power at all. And so I ask that you would strengthen me and that you would illumine all of our hearts and minds that we might understand your word and that we might believe your word and that we might find the rest that is offered in your word. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, this passage can be broken up into four sections. The first section is verse 8. Uh, And it's simply this sounding of an alarm calling the people to pay attention. Then verses 9 through 12 is the announcement of judgment. 13 through 15 is is the initial response that we'll see isn't fantastic. 
Uh, and then 6, 1 through 3 is the right response. It's, it's how we are to respond and the hope that we have in Christ. So first, verse 8 is just simply, it's, it's sounding an alarm, blowing the trumpet, the, the shofar, as they would blow the trumpet for different things, that something was about to happen or that an enemy was attacking or something like that. It's simply letting them know in Gibeah and Ramah and Beth Avon and Benjamin, like all these important places now that are being listed but that had become places of idolatry, hey, y'all better pay attention because I'm about to announce something that you need to hear. So that's the first verse. That's the first section. The second section, verses 9 through 12, is this announcement of the judgment. That's what it is that he's about to announce. It's judgment. And it's not comfortable. It vacillates back and forth between announcing the coming judgment and announcing the reason for the coming judgment. So, for instance, in verse 9a, in the first part, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. Judgment is coming. Okay? Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. There's part of why the judgment is coming. Now, this can be read one of two ways. Obviously, it can be read as I'm making known what is sure. That is this judgment. But But I think part of what's going on here is that God is saying, I've made known what is true. And y'all haven't paid attention to it. And that's why desolation is coming. In the next verse, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. In other words, they've become these kind of dishonest cheats. They've become thieves. Moving a landmark back then was a, a big deal because you were redefining boundaries. You were redefining land ownership. Right? I mean, imagine if, if you had a, a house and you were living in a neighborhood and, and you, you know, bought the house. And let's say it was a new neighborhood, so nobody had fences yet. And you knew, like, okay, here's kind of halfway between their house and my house. That's where the line is. Halfway between the back of my house and the back of theirs, that's where the line is. And, and halfway over here, that's where the line is. And let's say you woke up one morning and your neighbor to the right was like, hey, we're building a fence. The guys are going to be here today, so if you see lots of trucks... You know, don't worry about it. You're like, all right, cool. Thanks for letting me know. And you go to work and you come home and there had been a fence built that came all the way over to your house and then went back. And they had kind of just taken part of your yard. And said, yeah, that's ours now. You'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you don't get to just move the property line because you wanted more property. That's dishonest. That, that's, that's thievery. That, that, you're, a, you're a jerk. I don't like you. It's sinful. It's wrong. Well, that, that's what's happening here. J- Judas, they're, they're like those who moved the landmark. And other, but, but this is a metaphorical language. They didn't actually go out. I mean, they may have. I don't know that they went out and moved the landmark. It, it's saying they've moved what the standard is. They, they've changed what is true. They're redefining my word. They're redefining how I define this is what is sure. This is what is right. They've they've moved it. And God, no, we'll redefine it this way. Now, we don't have to think real hard in our culture about to find examples where, where culturally we've done that. Unfortunately, we don't have to think real hard in the church to find examples where we've been willing to do that either. To kind of shade God's word to make it a little bit more comfortable for us. 
Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. We have image, imagery here that reminds us of, of Romans chapter 1, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because he makes known what is sure. But we move the boundaries. We redefine things. We move the boundary markers. That's exactly what Paul says we do in Romans 1. That, that though we know God and, and that we should praise Him, we run after other things. We redefine everything. And so he gives us over. 11, more judgment is announced. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment. And then the reason? Because he was determined to go after filth. Now the word sar that's translated here as filth can also be, and I would argue maybe better translated as the commandments of man. That that's what was happening. Now, that would have led to filth, to be sure, but it's, it's a wonky word that's a little bit hard to deal with. And, and, but when we put it in context where God makes known what is sure, they redefine things, what is it that they're going after? Well, they're going after some other word besides God. They're redefining things. They're, they're being satisfied with the commandments of men and with their righteousness being defined by men around them. And then verse 12 is just gross. In the ESV, it says, But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. And I'm just going to tell you, when, when I was translating this passage to, to pray, prepare... And trying to figure out what this moth didn't come up in, in my lexicon. It was pus. It was a, a festering wound. This, like, I don't know, I don't know where moth, I tried to figure out why did they go with moth. I think because Bibles with pus just don't sell as well, probably. Um, but he's wanting this to be somewhat graphic. They're rotting from the inside out. It's what it feels like to them. Because of their sin. We've had blisters or a cut that maybe has gotten infected and you've got to get what's in there out. But notice what it says. I, this is Yahweh talking. I am like this to them. I am like rottenness to them. What's going on? He's perturbing them with their sin. The Spirit of God is at work convicting them, bringing the, the reality of, of, of what's in them to, to, to bear on them that they might see it that they might know that they need help. This is a wound of grace. That's what this is. This, as foul as it sounds, as uncomfortable as it sounds, this is God's grace at work. Not letting them live in the comfort of their sin. but making it like pus that is festering 
and rottenness that has to be removed. When we feel the conviction of the Spirit, isn't that how it feels? And do we understand that this is what's happening? That it's not God leaving. It's not God abandoning abandoning us to our sin. It's Him wounding us with grace and mercy. Verses 13 through 15, we see Ephraim's initial response. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. We we see first here this, this failed attempt at healing. Remember the story. Israel, especially Judah, also not, not quite as dramatic as Israel, but, but we've already seen that, that treacherous Judah, that, that it, wretched right Israel, I can't speak, that Israel in their sin is considered more righteous than treacherous Judah because Israel's like, yeah, we did this, and Judah tried to pretend like they didn't, right? So, so they're, they're all guilty. Like they're, they're all under the wrath. God is, is, is at work in them, you know, afflicting them, and they see it, and they feel it. They see their sickness. They see their wound. And what do they do? Ephraim went to Assyria to the great king. When God came through his prophet saying, this is what's going to happen. And all of this turmoil started happening in the life of Israel. Go read 2 Kings 15 through 17. They start cutting deals. They don't run to Yahweh. They don't seek his face. They don't call out to him in repentance and say, God, save us. Clearly you are a God of grace. You've given us an entire system of sacrifices by which our sin can be atoned for. You've called us to rest in you. You've defined who we are. You've set our boundaries. You've made known what is sure. We repent. Save us. That's not what they do. They go to Syria, to Assyria, to Egypt. They go to the nations around them from which they were to be set apart as the people of God and say, will you save us? Think about what they're asking. They're going to the people that Yahweh is sending to them to afflict them because of their sin and asking those people to save them from Yahweh who is sending them to them to afflict them from their sin. It is an absolutely fool's errand. Can you, who Yahweh is sending to afflict us, save us from Yahweh? No. No. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. It won't work. It will not work. 
when faced with our sin and its consequences, turning anywhere but to Jesus for hope, identity, and security is in essence sending for Assyria, the great king. The only place we can run is to Jesus. That's it. Trying to find relief, trying to find relief from from the rottenness in our flesh, anywhere but Jesus, doesn't work. It won't work. They they can't help us. They can't atone for us. They can't forgive us. They can't heal us. They can't fix us. It won't work. But it's what we do, isn't it? Now, and I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. Not, Not every, there's a caveat I want to offer. Not every physical or emotional condition is conviction or discipline from the Lord, okay? I want to be clear about that. There are real medical conditions for which we need real medical help. Right? We're all on the same page with that. But, no medical help running anywhere else to try to deal with our sin will work. We've got to make that distinction. There are real physiological afflictions that need physiological treatments. And there is sin rotting in us that feels the same way that needs Jesus. And nothing else will work. Why did this attempt fail? As we see in verse 14 and 15, it's because they were trying to work against what God was doing. That's why. God was the one that was convicting them. And they were running to the world, trying to get out from under God. They they, they were running away from God. They were being like Jonah. I'm going to run away. I can escape. And God's like, no, you can't. I'm everywhere. I made this whole place. I know you. I know where you are. You can't escape me. I will tear you like a lion and go away. I will carry off and none shall rescue. This, this is what I've determined. Why? Is it because he wants them abandoned? No. Next verse. I will return again to my place. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. We've seen this all throughout Hosea, haven't we? He doesn't say, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to wait until you figure this out. You go to your room and you think about it. And when you've gotten right, then we'll be good again. No. He says, I'm going to go over here and wait until you realize that you're guilty. And you come to me 
in your guilt. And you come to me in your distress. And you seek me. That's what he's waiting on. He's not abandoning them. He's not saying, you know what, forget you. I tried with you people. I tried. I really, I tried. I sent you out from everybody else. I gave you all of these signs. Goodness, I gave you a dude who could turn a stick into a snake. I brought you out of slavery. What else did you want? Forget you. No. All of this is God saying to his people, you are my beloved and I will not give up on you. But I will let you see that I'm your only hope and that I'm the only one who won't give up on you. So that you'll come earnestly to me and nowhere else. If you want a picture of what this looks like in real time so that so that you know i'm not just being kind of dramatic about like the the guilt that we feel and and all of that i would encourage you to go read this afternoon in in consecutive order psalm 38 39 and 40 we often just read like this psalm that psalm whatever there's a beautiful story that's being told i believe from beginning to end Psalm 38, 39, and 40, which I'm, I'm inclined to just read all of right now. I'm not going to, but I am going to read parts of so that you get what's happening. O Lord, Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, for, uh, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go mourning. Have you felt that? Do you feel that now? What's the answer? It's not to run to Assyria. Whatever that may be a metaphor for in your life. That's not the answer. He continues... He's like a deaf man. I'm feeble. I'm crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from me. My heart throbs. My strength fails. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when, I, when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. My foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord of my salvation, 
I don't like the translation make haste. Like it, it's technically right. But it sounds like you're like on some jaunt through the Scottish Highlands and your guide is like, make haste, hurry along. You know, there's rain coming. That's not what's going on here. This psalmist, David, is utterly undone. And he's saying, God, come on, man. I need you right now. I don't need you tomorrow. I don't need you in a week. I need you right now. Hurry up with my salvation. Because I'm undone. I'm undone. And I need you. Verse 39, he commits himself to God. Psalm 39, he commits himself to God. I said, I'll guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth. Verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes of sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Verse Chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And all the people my age start singing you too. He drew me up out of the miry pit. He set my feet up on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Amen and amen to that. We fill this despair of sin. And we think, I'm unlike anyone else in my sin. You're not. And there is hope for you. Because of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6 is the better response. Instead of running to Assyria, instead of running to the world, hoping that they can heal the wounds, hoping that they can stop the pain, hoping that like they'll give their dispensation of grace, which they don't actually have, come, let us return to the Lord. Here it is. Let us return to Him. Why? For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. He's the one that's done it. And He's done it for a purpose. And He's done it for the purpose of healing us. He's the one that has struck us and He's done it for a purpose. And the purpose is that He would be the one to bind us up. The world can't heal the wound that God has opened because of our sin. 
God will. He's opened that wound. He's he's, he's been pus to you. So that you might see that there's a need. And run to Him in all your desperation. And find hope in Him. And find comfort in Him. And find salvation in Him. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. This is where I just get mad at commentaries because they work real hard to be like, I mean, I don't know that we can make this Jesus. It's talking about a resurrection on the third day. How is it that He will lift us up but through the resurrection that happened on the third day? This isn't saying to Israel, you're going to be gone for three days. We know that wasn't the case. They were out there for 40 years in exile. So this is clearly metaphorical. How was it that they were restored? What was the third day resurrection that established Israel and dealt with their sin and removed the pain and healed them and washed them clean by the blood of the Lamb but the resurrection of Jesus Christ in victory over our sin and over death itself? He's promising it here. I'm going to take all of your sin, and I'm going to put it on my son, and I'm going to pour out my wrath like water on him, and he's going to be undone, and I'm going to open wounds on him for you, and he will rise in victory, and so will you with him. Israel, Christ Church Conway, that is how we will rise on the third day, is in Jesus Christ our Savior, and no other way. No other way. But we will. We will. We will rise in Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Why? Kids, here's the kids' sermon. Because His going out, that is His going out to do the work of salvation, His going out to do the work of redemption, His going out to claim us as His people is as sure as the dawn. If you can stop the sun from rising, then you can stop Jesus from redeeming. And guess what? You can't do either. You can't do either. What the world can't do for you, what Assyria couldn't do for Israel and Judah, God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The redemption that He has worked for us is sure as the sun. He will come to us as the showers, the rains, the spring rains that give life. We just went through this kind of drought season and everything was brown. All the ivy in my garden 
next to my driveway that wasn't in the shade of a tree is dead. It's all brown. And then it started raining. And my kids had to start cutting the grass again. And it was glorious. It started raining. And, and our garden was full of weeds again. And it was glorious. Why? Because it was life. It was life bursting forth where previously there was death. And God says that's how he is to us. He comes to us like the spring rains that water the earth. And so I ask you, when you feel that, to whom will you run? May it be Jesus. May it be Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the mighty comfort that it is. Would you comfort us now? And do it quickly. Because we don't feel that we can hold on much longer. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.